Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you to another Elemental Collision podcast. This time fueled by, well, what else is it going to be fueled by? Coffee. I have soundtracks, I have all that kind of stuff in the works, but suffice it to say, today you're just going to get a little bit of my pain through my voice. Is that good enough for you? I hope it's good enough for you. So, really don't have a fixed subject in mind today. I figure there's just a grab bag of everything that's out there. So, what I want to do is, um, I'm going to go through a few things. Let's go and let's hit Google News. News. Google. Let's look in a technology space, right? Massachusetts zip codes rank among the 100 most expensive. Man, who gives a shit about that, really? All right. Well, Google, you're not being you're not being really friendly to me today. Let's try this again. News.google.com. There we go. Now you're playing with fire. All right, technology. You know what? Let's just start from the top. Disney CEO confirms that Disney Plus will likely be available on Apple TV. Here's what I find interesting about this whole stuff. You know, everybody's launching their own streaming services, right? You have Netflix, you have Amazon, you know, typical stuff that I actually use. I have a, well, I have a Netflix account. I use a Netflix account, I should say. I have Amazon Prime, do that. I used to have Hulu. Yeah, not a bad value. I used to have uh, YouTube TV. Everybody has their own little... You know, as a service. TV as a service. That's what it should be. TV as a service. TV ass. <laughs> Get it? Uh, <clears throat> in any case, you know, so we have all these services that are floating around, right? And so now there's, you know, the DC Universe service. All right. I actually did that to watch Titans, uh, which was fairly dark and fairly decent. And um, canceled it. Value's not there. I mean, all these a la carte services end up costing you a fuckload more than they would ever cost you in like a pile together. But, uh, you know, everybody's just clamoring for the a la carte stuff, right? And you gotta understand that some of these bundles and these deals and whatever just don't end up working in your favor. So, any case, so let's click on artificial intelligence as a category. AI predicts Game of Thrones deaths. <laughs> so, I read the books. I, I admit to not have watched, ha, not having watched the series at all. I've been in locations where I know where the soundstage is: Belfast, Ireland. Hello, out you, County Antrim, uh, in Northern Ireland. Hello, looking at you. But really, when it comes down to it, I have not really invested the time, energy, or effort into watch the series. Um, that being said, I did start it. I watched season one, episode one, whatever. Read the books. Now, outside of George R.R. R. Martin being the slowest goddamn writer on the face of the planet, I mean, seriously, dude, we're still waiting for this. The show has even taken liberties. So the show is going to predict deaths that are not going to end up in, you know, have are we've already been warned that they're not going to end up in the books. Uh, okay. That's the reason why I read the books, and then I wait for the movies to come out. You know what I mean? Like, I think there was a Switchfoot song way back when it says, um, I think it was Chem 1A, right, you know? I don't want to read the books. I'll watch the movie. This is the inverse of that. I'd rather read the books, follow that path. And then, you know, Hey, and I can go by and find, you know, go watch these things and find out where they diverged on the road. Not like it's important, but AI predicting the death of game of Thrones characters. I mean, that's, that's relatively intriguing. Um, 
I suppose you could say that you can feed it with a lot of inference data or a lot of data if you pre-train it. Like, look, look what Cersei does. Look what Anya does. Look at all these, you know, John Stark, I mean, White Walkers. I mean, someone's killing somebody in every single page of these books, right? In, in every single scene in these movies, one way or the other, right? Khaleesi to dragons, whatever. Again, I don't admit to having uh, a thorough, thorough knowledge of everything, but like, all right, is this what's the use of the uh, AI at this point, right? seems kind of meh. But hey, if you want to predict the Game of Thrones, that's what, with it, be my guest. Let's scroll down. Qualcomm announces this new AI chip, Qualcomm Cloud AI 100 Accelerator. So I find it interesting. Everybody is going to be doing accelerators. I think I've posited in times before that the role, the rule of GPUs is going to be coming to an end. Let me say it again. I believe that the role or the rule not the role, but the rule of GPUs is coming to an end. Why? Uh, for entirely the reason of diversification within portfolios and the fact that not everybody wants to do everything at the same time. Right? So, I mean, even the fact that NVIDIA has branched out and doing P4s, T4s, whatever for inference, right? Versus, you know, your box standard RTXs or Quadros or your Tensor based, whatever, blah, 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 V100s, G100s, that kind of stuff. GV100, sorry. Um, I think there's going to be, there's a changing role in the way that we're going to do these things. AI that is being written specifically for certain types of accelerators. So, GraphCore, for example. So, their I. IPUs, intelligent processing units. I mean, a lot of what GraphWars magic is, is, is in, is the software and the way that the software is compiled for it, right? The hardware is pretty fucking nifty too, if you take a look at it, but you know, like, that's, that's the thing. Another one of my little favorites is BrainChip. I mean, I like neuromorphic hardware just in general, right? So whether it be Intel or BrainChip or whatever, you know, certain things in order to get the maximum value, the software has to be written for it. I mean, the value is always in the software, right? We always look at this, you know, why CUDA, why Rapids, you know, are, are so effective and why NVIDIA's, you know, kind of natural inheritance and incumbency in the market is so great is that they wrote a lot of really good software. They made frameworks where frameworks weren't necessarily there. Um, and they made it easier, not easy, but easier to get to the end state, right? And when you get to it, when you kind of design for the outcome, I mean, hint, hint, that's going to be coming through a lot of the work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis, by the way, in messaging. When you design for the outcomes, you end up in a pretty good stead. The problem is that one size does not fit all. In some cases, there are places, there are ways, there are means, there are reasons why a GPU may or may not be the best fit. Power consumption is certainly one of them. GPUs are hungry, Right. And if you have all that circuitry in there and you're feeding with all that power and you don't necessarily need it all, then again, see my point about software. Why not software and limited hardware? Why not use the hardware that's most appropriate for the circumstance, right? So when we live out in the edge, right? And the edge to me is very much data driven. It is a data domain, not to be confused with data domain, you know, the Dell EMC property, which by the way, I'll put my disclaimer at the end. I am not speaking on behalf of my employer. Did I say it loud enough? Did I clip it? Why did I clip that in the, on the recording? That being said, you know, we start to look at these kind of specialty applications and processing, you know, it makes a lot of fucking sense. Start using things that are lower power. So Qualcomm doesn't surprise me. They already have a really robust understanding of mobility. They have a really robust understanding of low power, high performance processors, right? Snapdragons. I mean, it is the de facto standard for non-Apple based ARM SOCs in America. Just is. You have Samsung with Exynos. You have obviously Huawei with high silicon. 
or Kieran, uh, MediaTek with Kieran. Is it MediaTek with Kieran? I don't know. Any of these guys. You know, and noticeably absent is, you know, AMD and Intel. Well, I mean, we know that AMD owns ARM IP. We know that Intel had Rockchip or was working with Rockchip at one point. So at some point had some sort of collection of um, ARM IP. But, you know, and then you also have the Risk Five folks, you know, Sci Five and, and the development of those things, you know, so MIPS updates, right? You know, to get low power, you know, you know, highly effective processing. So a lot of this stuff, I think you're going to see a lot more announcements of, hey, we're going to do this too. We're going to do this with customized silicon. So the proof is in. Not necessarily hardware, because I think the hardware ends up becoming somewhat ubiquitous and somewhat flexible. It becomes in the software, you know, the um, uh, software development, SDKs around it, API fitment, uh, how it fits in the current frameworks, how it pushes those current frameworks to develop more. I mean, that's where shit becomes interesting, right? Anybody can do hardware. Most anybody can do hardware. Um, Most anybody can do hardware reasonably well, but... When it comes down to it, the software is what really kills things time and time again, right? It's neat. <laughs> you know, you point back to AMD and their launch of, you know, 64-bit ISA, you know, extensions to the x86 ISA. How long did it take Microsoft to adopt that shit? A long time. But once they did, the efficacy rate's there. Now we don't even think in terms of anything other than 64-bit Windows, right? But remember back when there was 32-bit versus 64 Remember when there was 16 versus 32. I mean, there's a lot of push and shove when it comes to these things. And not everything needs to be adopted at the same time. So, anyway. uh, Another title here is How Big Data is Changing Insurance. And this is from the New York Times. Um, It's interesting how AI is actually changing insurance as well. Got to put a small little plug in here, and not that anybody necessarily listens to this, but if you're going to Dell Technologies World, you know, remember my employer is Dell Technologies, uh, I will be speaking along with a wonderful, wonderful man named Brian Reeves, who is the SVP of Inclusion and Diversity uh, inside Dell Technologies about bias in AI, right? So one of the things that you end up dealing with in bias in AI is not just skin color, it's not just gender, it's not just... Um, religion or these other things which are all certainly keystones to what people have chosen to use as bias in the past but also looking at how even using data in their inappropriate ways introduces or injects bias into your outputs right garbage in garbage out right so if you go approach it with a certain thing uh, a guy that i work with a guy named ed henry you know says volition you know your volition is a huge portion of what determines output right i'm probably paraphrasing him a little bit but we're gonna go with that but how you approach data how you view it and how that mindset you know becomes important so big data changing insurance absolutely you start to look at these fields and an interesting bit here and i'm not reading the article it's in front of you because lord knows you'd be bored to death is you get a look at these things and you got to say hey are they approaching this in a bias neutral type way Meaning if we took a cross section of America, you know, is there enough representation from the constituents? You know, are we just sampling white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in 60s and 70s who live in upper Ohio, you know, that that are farmers? Well, that's a really terrible sample, you know, because those guys might live to be 100. Are we sampling, you know, um, black or African-American immigrant, you know, immigrants, black, African-American, Mexican, so on and so forth, people of color uh, from Northern Mississippi who are, you know, farmers. 
Well, that's a different thing. You know, that actually interjects bias on the other side, right? So what's the sample set? What's the ratio? A lot of this stuff has to do with what's the underpinning of the data sets, right? There was a, a big deal when it came across that uh, department, you know, HUD, Housing and Urban Development. I might have screwed up who the originating agency, some federal agency, was uh, using red zone data, so where high mortgage failures were, and was either denying or um, escalating rates, increasing rates, based on these sampled areas. Well, the problem is you get something that's an economically depressed area. So let's say Detroit kind of when every uh, the economy bottomed out. It's not that Detroit's going to be a bad place to live. It's not that Detroit is inherently more risky than not, but there was a lot of manufacturing jobs that were lost. So causality, right? And so if you approached that and said, well, you know, Detroit's a huge risk. It's not that Detroit's in any other type of risk. You can go to San Francisco and you watch them, you know, if we had another turn of the century kind of, you know, blow up of the, you know, the Silicon Valley gang, right? And all of a sudden they, the bottom dropped out of that market. Then we could say San Francisco would be a huge fucking risk, right? It all depends on how you look at the data and what you take it in with context. And a lot of what we're seeing and a lot of what I understand to be true and a lot of these things, which is a cautionary tale whenever you see these signs, is what's the source of their data? How are they approaching it? Are they being upfront? Are they clearing their biases ahead of time to let you know what actually is the truth here? Because if they're not, then that's a pile of horse shit. Is it changing insurance for the good or for the or for the worse? Well, you know, I would want them to be using good data to predict better outcomes, right? It's the same way. You have to use the data in a way that, you know, you have a mind, you have that mindset. You identify your biases up front. You understand what you're trying to accomplish, and it has to be externally vetable. Meaning, scientific method, folks. You got to be able to prove that point. Other people have to be able to prove your point as well. You know, if you're going to claim it to be true. Uh, we noticed that 60 to 7 year old white Anglo-Saxon pro- Protestants in Upper Ohio, you know, die with less frequency than any other population in America. Well, then you better fucking give me all your data and we'll run it again. We'll look at your sample sets. We'll look at everything that goes on. It's just good statistical whatever. So sorry to harp on this whole thing again. We'll do one more of these articles that hopefully is not going to be around bias, even though everything seems to be around bias and ethics these days. Um... <laughs> so Elon Musk, Tesla autopilot, artificial intelligence, AI podcast. You talk about a loaded gun and I'm not going to break any uh, surprises here, but you will hear me on a podcast about automotive AI coming shortly. Google's internal AI panel is packed with its own executives. This is coming out of my broadband. Whatever the fuck that is. So that's the site I've ever seen. So here's the situation. So an AI panel, what what constitutes an AI panel? You know, when we look at AI panels, and, you know, this is something I've kind of explored and kind of looked at, and, you know, it's always fascinated me. There has to be a certain level of internal navel-gazing, right? Any company. Any company that has an AI stake in the ground with AI, any company that has anything to say in this thing, you have to have at least some internal mechanism. So an internal AI panel is not altogether wrong. I'm not saying that this article is saying that because I'm not opening anything other than the headline. Um, got to be careful headlines because they can almost skew the RS article for you though. There always has to be an internal investigation. Again, go through, what are your biases? What are your strongholds? What are your strengths? What do you do in this line of work? 
Are you weaponizing AI? Oh, God. You know, that's an ethical quandary right there. Um, are we developing algorithms? Are we providing algorithms? Are we simply a mercenary that does whatever our clients ask us to do? You know, does that make us culpable for the end state? You know, um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez would certainly argue that anybody... Well, she seems to argue this and don't want to put words in her mouth, would argue that anybody who has involved in any of these kind of travesties is consequently responsible for the outcome, right? So Wells Fargo, famous challenge she did. You know, you funded the uh, Keystone XP pipeline, XL pipeline, sorry. So you must be responsible for the outcome. Well, I mean, that's kind of a stretch, but it's a good question. Are we? You know, so having this internal naval gazing or internal audit, you know, panel is a really good thing. Look at the projects you have. Um, understand what you're doing and understand the outputs. What are we aiming for? I think also in consideration for this and <laughs> Google, you know, did this the wrong way. In my opinion, you also need to have ethical guidelines around it. You know, developing an AI product for the sake of developing an AI product is one thing, but doing without any kind of consideration for the end state, the social impact, which is a huge thing for me, social impacts, um, yeah, it's just, it's irresponsible. So I go and develop this code. I don't know where it's going to end up. You know, I wash my hands of it like Julia, you know, Julius Caesar in the Bible, right? And it, not my fault. And I let the thing happen. <laughs> well, if the end state results in people dying or the implication is that things go very, very poorly based on the work I did, and I did not consider the end from the beginning, again, building for an outcome, then yeah. I mean, we've got a crisis of belief here. We've got a crisis of ethics. We have a crisis of morality. And all these things need to be evaluated. So it's not that Google's intention was wrong. I think they went about it the wrong way. But having an internal panel, I would argue having an internal ethics panel that does not... Listen, do we have to announce every single fucking thing we do publicly? No. If you're trying to build goodwill in the news, go right ahead. Ask kiss every analyst, ask kiss every journalist out there and say, look at what we're doing. Um, I would argue that's false humility. That's false modesty. That's false. Your bravado is taking the place of your responsibility. And that's bullshit. So you don't want to do that. However, you do need the insights from people external to your organization that are not, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. But you also need the balance of people that are inside your organization that have drunk the Kool-Aid that may be able to provide contrasting data, contrasting endpoint. Again, the whole design behind these panels or the whole concept behind these panels is to get the variety of inputs and experience. Does having a, you know, this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but does having somebody from the Heritage Foundation inherently make the panel bad? Uh, I would argue no. Why? Because it's a contrasting viewpoint. It doesn't mean that they're right. It doesn't mean that the other side is right. Those are the places where, if you do this right, you identify biases coming in the door. You know, I would have to identify in you know, any of these things. Listen, I was raised Protestant. I went to Protestant college. I went to Protestant seminary school, right? Graduate school, right? Didn't become a priest, hence the... Wonderful words I like to use. So I have an inherent growth in the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant space. That actually lends itself to bias. And I understand it. Does that mean I recuse myself from these type of conversations? Absolutely not. Because my opinion is as valid as other people's opinion. Because I am representative of a cross-section of my user base. 
Sorry, that's what happens. Heritage Foundation, the same way. Are they right for their viewpoints against LGBTQ folks? No, I would say from a personal standpoint, from a moral standpoint, I don't believe they're correct at all. But does their viewpoint actually represent a population? (laughs) Sadly, yes, it does. Does that make their opinion any less valid than the people across the table who are, you know, contra that? You know, it's the, you know, if we use, if we use polarizing uh, aspects of politics like abortion versus pro, you know, anti-abortion or pro-life or you know pro-choice or anything you always find in these polarities you find differences of opinion some are right some you know, some you know what i mean like this argument sustains itself and it causes so much problems so is the best result to go with conflict free absolutely not because you absolutely have to understand i'm using absolutely that you have to understand people's viewpoints and if you refuse to do that you're almost as bad as the person that you let go for having that opinion. So I want differences of opinions. I want representation from people who do not believe the same way I do. But you know what? If we're all going to be adults, uh, maybe that's a bias. We need to have kids on these panels. <laughs> but if we identify that we're all going to act like adults and we're all working towards the single unified goal of a point of view, of understanding what it is we do and why and how and the boundaries of this, we all are working towards an end that is common. And therefore, a differing viewpoint should be sustained, should be encouraged, even though the actual standpoints that they have are odious, are absolutely odious. Because again, unless they're, you know, we could even draw a line and say, and say they're not criminal. <gasps> oh my God, you know? Yeah, it's a ball of wax. (laughs) Somebody said on a call yesterday I was a part of it. It's a hairy ball of wax. You know what? It's true. It's ugly. It doesn't make anybody comfortable. But it does leave a mark. And it does have to be sustained. We have to be able to confront our own biases. We have to be able to confront our own people. We have to be able to understand the things that fuck us up at the end of the day in order to come to a relatively solid understanding and a solid output of what what we believe you know and these outputs become critical when you start to look at ethics and especially critical when you start to look at the application of ethics to artificial intelligence Alrighty, folks this is the disclaimer i do not talk on behalf of my employer what so fucking ever and they will disclaim me and i will disclaim them however i am proud to be an employee there um that being said this is copyright 2019 by david graham that's me uh part of elementalcollision.com feel free to visit the website i don't do so much blogging anymore i like to do podcasts with some frightening irregularity but all things being said all things being equal i'm glad you tuned in for the 23 odd minutes that this podcast ends up being so have a great day folks enjoy your week and doing this on a friday in the afternoon enjoy your weekend enjoy everything that makes you human and take care of your family's friends and people around you be kind that's what we're here for cheerio folks